<laughs> Good morning, son. You know, I went to a I went to a conference at a church one time down in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's the biggest church in that city. I think they've got about six thousand people coming to a in a town of about one hundred and forty thousand. So they're having a major impact. And we ask, uh, we ask them, you know, tell us about your worship services, how they're organized, and so forth. And they told us that they have, they have every minute of their worship service planned out everything that will happen in eight-second increments. And we are clearly not that well-oiled around here. <laughs> All right? Um, somebody is a wrench in that whole works. I won't say who. Uh, but uh, this this morning, I want to start, a, we're going to take a little break from Genesis. We will go back to Joseph and his brothers here in a few weeks, but I want to spend the next few weeks on a new series uh, on evangelism, and the title of this series is You Can Do It, because I believe with all my heart that each one of us not only can learn to share the gospel, but can do so in a way that is winsome and effective and faithful to God. And I want this series to be as guilt-free as possible and as encouraging as it can possibly be. I'm, I, I am, for a lot of people, evangelism is the weakest area of their Christian life. And, and it's pretty easy, therefore, to stand up here and make people feel really guilty about the fact that they haven't shared the gospel with very many people. But I think the fact is, is that for most people, the primary reason they have difficulty sharing the gospel isn't that they don't know that they have a responsibility to do so, and they are just choosing to rebel against God and be disobedient. If that were the reason, perhaps guilt would be an appropriate feeling. But I think for a lot of people, what they, it's that they want to share the gospel, but they either feel ill-equipped to do so, or they are fearful of what might happen if they try, and they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing, or that what they do say is going to be misunderstood, or that it's going to turn the person off and actually push them further away from Jesus rather than bring them closer, or that they'll be asked a question they can't answer and they'll feel stupid, or that, they'll be, or that the relationship they have with the person that they care about is going to be irreparably damaged. And so we have all these fears that kind of surround our evangelistic efforts. And so for the next few weeks, what I want to try to do is dispel a lot of those fears and encourage you that you really can do this, that you, and that when you do, you're going to experience a joy and a level of spiritual growth and a new fire in your spiritual life that maybe you've never experienced. Because you are going to be taking a risk when you share the gospel with somebody, for sure. There is risk involved. But what will also happen is that you will begin to see God work, and he will feel his presence with you in a way maybe unlike any other part of your spiritual life. And so I want to begin with you uh, in John chapter 4. We're going to get Jesus to do evangelism, okay? John chapter 4. Uh, John is meeting with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar, which is the ancient city in Jacob's day of Shechem. Some bad things happened there in Jacob's day. Some good things are about to happen in Jesus' day with Jesus. Um, 
Jesus has been identifying a little at a time with this woman at Sychar that he, in fact, is the Messiah. The one that she has been waiting for is in the flesh, sitting there talking to her. And she is excited beyond belief. She's a, she's a sinful woman. She's lived a sinful life. She's had all kinds of relational issues going on in her life. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the guy you've been waiting for. And off she runs into town to gather everybody in town to come out and see this man, the Messiah. And about that time, the disciples come back from town and they've been in buying food. And they turn around and they see everybody coming out after them. And Jesus says, pick up here with me in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Who's the sower? Jesus. Who's the reaper? The disciples who are right there. It says, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And what I want you to see in this passage is that there are three people involved in evangelism. Those three people are, first of all, the harvest, the non-believer, the person who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then there are disciples to whom Jesus is speaking. There are believers involved in evangelism. And then the third person is God himself, here in the person of Jesus, who is sending out believers as laborers to reap the harvest. And so I titled this message, A New Perspective, and I want us all to get God's perspective on each of these people and the role that they play in evangelism. Get God's perspective on the non-believer, get God's perspective on Jesus, and God's perspective on us. Who are each of these people, and what role do they play? Well, the first person that you encounter, obviously, is the non-believer. You've got your outline there. That's the first blank there on your outline, the non-believer. That's your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, your co-workers, uh, the people that you're seeking to share the gospel with. Uh, these are the people with whom God wants us to share because these are the people who need salvation from sin and death and hell that is possible only through the gospel. And so we want to look at what God says about them. First, we're going to look at a lot of passages today. Uh, kids, if you've got your Bibles, you can look up right along with the adults. In fact, some of you will probably be faster than them. And you can race mom and dad and see who gets there first. All right. Um, first one we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is God speaking through the Apostle Paul, talking about he's writing to believers, and he's telling them about how they used to be, before they met Jesus. And he says, what he says is that non-believers are literally dead. That they are, they're 
in a sense, walking corpses. Their sin has put them to death even while they're alive and has made them followers of Satan, which is what Paul means by the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. Satan would be another name for him. It says that whether you know it or not, when you're a non-believer, you're a follower of Satan, and your sin is putting you to death even while you're still alive and is eventually going to subject you to eternal death in hell. So unbelievers, non-believers are dead and followers of Satan. And then uh, if you go to the next one, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians Turn the right way in my Bible here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan again, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, uh, what you see here, Satan, the god of this world, is, is at work in the world to make the gospel hidden, to hide it, to blind unbelievers to it, to keep them from seeing it, and to uh, make them unable to grasp it so that they can't see it as the freeing news about Jesus Christ that it is. He is at work actively to prevent people from believing the gospel, being released from sin and death and hell. Because he is in rebellion against God. And he wants to carry other people along in his rebellion. And so unbelievers have the gospel veiled to them and they are blinded to it. Because Satan is at work to blind them to it. Uh, now flip back a little further. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Down to verse 14. Paul writes here in a, about a couple of different types of people. Those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not. In verse 14, he says, The natural person, that is, the person who is just a regular old unbeliever, some the average person who comes into the world who does not know God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the person who lacks the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life every time that a person believes in Christ. At the moment a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit personally takes up residence in them. And the Holy Spirit is at work in them to transform them and to illumine the scriptures to them and to make God's word comprehensible to them in a personal way. So that it's not just facts and, and stories and things on a, words on a page, but it's actually something that resonates with their soul and they get a new set of eyes to see God's word with and to, and to carry on relationship with God with. But apart from the Spirit's work in a person's life, preaching God's Word and reading the Scriptures, it, it might be understandable in an intellectual way, but it comes across to the person who's not a spiritual person, a person who is apart from the Spirit of God, 
as just so much pointless gibberish. Like me standing up here and talking in Swahili to a group of English speakers. You go, what was that about? I don't know. I think it was words. Um, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't come across in the same way. And so a person without the Spirit doesn't have the ability in and of themselves to have the gospel be real and powerful in their lives. And so at this point, what we see as we've kind of burned through these verses is that unbelievers, according to the Bible, are dead. They're blinded to a veiled gospel. They're spiritually foolish, and they're unable to grasp it personally. And because of all these things, Jesus looked at non-believers with a great deal of compassion because he realized, as they did, that unbelievers are not the enemy. It's important that we remember that as believers in Christ, that people who are not believers in Christ are not our enemy. They are victims of the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're people who have been blinded and made spiritually foolish, not by God, but by the God of this age, by Satan, who blinds them and who keeps the gospel hidden from them and makes it sound like gibberish to them. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Look over to uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. This is Jesus they're talking about. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost and they're helpless. Just like sheep with no shepherd to protect and guide them. Jesus is the shepherd to whom we are attempting to lead a non-believer. Sheep are pretty helpless. Amen? You ever seen anybody with like a, a warning sign on their door that says, Warning, attack sheep. It's not there, right? Why? Because I've been around some sheep. My dad has some. He's gotten into sheep ranching. Uh, out over in Indiana, uh, the housing business went bust, so what am I going to do? I'm going to raise meat sheep. All right. Okay, so whatever. But what sheep are is totally terrified of everything. And if, you, if there's no shepherd to protect them, they just wander around kind of lost and afraid of everything. And Jesus looks at the, un, uh, the unbeliever as sheep without a shepherd. People who need him in their lives. And we ought to have the same attitude toward them. Uh, one last passage here on the non-believer. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Titus. I know it's a lot of flipping. That's why you have the passages there in your, in your outline. So if you miss one, you can look it up later. But Titus chapter 3, verse 3. 
Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. A non-believer, naturally, without the Spirit of God, is someone who is deceived and someone who is serving the world without knowing that he or she is leading a life that leads to destruction. They don't know they're going 100 miles an hour off a cliff, but they are. And there are two things that, that this perspective from the scriptures on non-believers ought to give us. It, first of all, ought to help us remember that we were all there once upon a time. Before someone shared the gospel with us, all these things applied to us too. And so we are not any better. All these things once described you and me. And number two, seeing our friends and relatives and co-workers and neighbors and people that we know that need to know Jesus this way ought to fill us with compassion for them because we don't want them to stay in this condition. Amen? We ought not want to leave people dead and blind and foolish and disobedient to God. We ought to want to lead them to the shepherd who will protect and guide them and help them and save them from sin and death and hell and set them free from the, their overlord, Satan, to serve the living God. I want to look at the next person here who's involved in evangelism, which is God himself. And God is the person who goes before you and who goes with you and who goes after you in evangelism. So before you go to talk to this person, who's there? God is. When you're talking to this person, who's there? God is. After you've shared with this person, who is there putting that message to work in their heart? God is. He is the person who goes before you and with you and after you. Uh, I want you to go over to uh, John 6, verse 44 with me. And this is what Jesus says. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, God the Father is at work in the world to bring people to Jesus. He brings people to himself through Jesus by grace. And salvation comes from God through Jesus as the Spirit works to bring eternal life to people. That God in Trinity is at work in salvation. Just as he is using you as the agent of it to announce the message, God is at work in it as well. That God is drawing people to himself through faith in Jesus. And it, we'll see later the Spirit is at work to cause that to happen. That the Father draws people to himself through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. But no one comes apart from that. In other words, you can be set free from any guilt that you have over the fact that 
well, I haven't ever shared Jesus with anybody and had them come to faith in Christ. Well, you know what? It's God who does it anyway. We're just the conduit that he uses. It's God who does the work. Uh, I want you to look over at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here Paul is writing about his evangelistic work and how he planted the Corinthian church by sharing the gospel with people. And, he, and then later, Apollos, who was another, uh, another one of the early leaders in the church, came along later and taught people in the Corinthian church and built them up. He says this, verse 6, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave growth. In other words, it's God who is the author of new life. And we are not responsible for what is God's work of bringing a person to faith in Christ. We are only responsible to play our role of either planting or watering. And it's God who causes new life to come forth. And some of us plant the seed, some of us water it. I don't know what your role is, but God is the one who is at work to cause new life to spring forth from the seed that was planted. We're only responsible to play our part. God is responsible for the fruit and also for the lack thereof. In other words, if a person that you share the gospel with doesn't come to Christ right away, who's to blame? God, not you. Because he is the person who's responsible ultimately for causing a person to come to faith in Christ. It's God's work. You get to participate in it. But, you know, we grew tomatoes out there in the yard this year. We planted the little plants. We watered them. And they've done fantastic. We have more tomatoes than we can eat. By the way, if you want some, come by the house later. We will hook you up. Um but what, who, who causes this stuff to grow? God does. I've never made a tomato plant in my life. God causes that to happen. It's the same way with the gospel. We plant, we water, God makes it grow. And God is not only the author of new life, he's also the sender of disciples. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 28? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. The same God who calls us to himself, the same God who gives us new life, is the same God who sends forth disciples to share the message so that other people can have new life. And it's not as if, by the way, that God is reluctant to save people or he's sending us on some sort of a sanctified wild goose chase. In fact, it's just the opposite. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 3 and 4, if you see what God says there, what you see is this. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of our God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If God wants all people to be saved, it logically follows that when we share the gospel, there's going to be large numbers of people who do, in fact, believe and are saved. Does it not? 
if that is God's desire that all people over the whole planet would come to faith in him, then when he sends us out and says, preach the gospel, there are going to be large numbers of people who come to faith in Christ. It's not a wild goose chase. We're not shooting in the dark here. God has already gone before us. And I want you to look at one other thing. You're over in John chapter 16, verse 8. Talks about the Holy Spirit's role in evangelism. It says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God's Spirit is diligent to convict and to lead people to their knowledge of their need for Christ. God's Spirit is active in the world and is poking people actively, saying, you need to find God. You need to get back to God, and you need to come through faith in Jesus. And he's convicting them of their sin and of God's righteousness and the fact that apart from faith in Christ, they're going to face judgment. And God's Spirit is at work. And now it's time to look at the last person involved in evangelism, and that's you and me. You. Because you have the privilege of partnering with God in his eternal work of bringing people to faith in him. I want you to look at at just a few places what God says about you and your role in evangelism. First one is Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Starts off just like all of Paul's letters, to all the saints and faithful brothers. And you might not think of yourself this way, but in fact, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called a saint because you are all, as believers in Jesus Christ, people who are specially called by God and chosen by God to be his holy people. And in addition to that, you're a servant. Over in uh, Acts chapter 16, 17b, you have uh, Paul and Silas. And they're being accurately described by this girl they've been sharing the gospel with about as servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And we, like Paul and Silas, are also servants of God. And we also have God's commission to proclaim to the lost the way of salvation. Amen? We're servants. That's our job. And we're also called to fulfill our role as Planters and waterers, just like Paul and Apollos. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Sometimes, you know, it's estimated that it takes about seven times for someone hearing the gospel for them to actually believe. And so sometimes you may be person number one who plants the seed of the gospel in someone's heart. Sometimes you might be number four or number six or number five or number three. Sometimes you get to be number seven and you get to see God bring new life to that person. But the important thing is to be faithful to fulfill your role in sharing the gospel. A few other things we need to see about ourselves. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Guess where you are in that? You're a laborer. You're someone that God is sending forth into the field of the world to harvest those who are unbelievers and bring them in. We're the, we're, we're the workers, and we're the ones that are called to pray for more workers, to go out into the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful, because God has made it so. According to Acts 1.8, we have a commission not just to people we know, but to serve as God's witnesses to the whole world. Remember? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. What's a witness do? He tells what happened. Just like the guy that, remember the story of how Jesus healed the blind man who was born blind? And they ask him, what happened? Well, I don't know exactly, but I was blind, and now I can see. He goes, well, surely that guy couldn't have healed you. I don't know, you know, but I was with him, and I was blind, and now I can see. Okay, you ask him about all your theological stuff, but I was blind, and now I can see, and that guy healed me. And you can say to an unbeliever, I was dead, I was foolish, I was blind to the gospel, I wanted nothing to do with God, and guess what? God changed my heart, and now I'm alive. And now I have a home in heaven, and I am not afraid of what happens to me when I die. That's what a witness does. It tells what happened. Did you see what happened? Right? Yes, I did. I was there. It happened to me. And just like the gospel writers were eyewitnesses, we are eyewitnesses of what happened to us. What happened to you? Well, I was raised in a Christian home, but I never really understood all this stuff until God got a hold of me. And he called me into ministry, and he gave me a commission to preach the gospel. And it's awesome. What happened to me? What happened to you? Go and tell what happened to you, right? That's the deal. Um, Last thing, Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of of the time. In other words, we need discernment. Not every situation is ripe for the gospel. Not every person is open to hearing it. But we need eyes to see the opportunities that are there and boldness to take advantage of them when they come. Because no one comes to Jesus, no one comes to the Father unless I mean, comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him, right? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our job, let me make it real simple, just boil it all down. Our job is to take Jesus Christ to the lost. God's job is to take the lost to Jesus Christ. And we do well not to get it confused. Our job is to be faithful to present the gospel. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. God's responsibility is to save them in response to it. A few things here to remember that evangelism is a partnership. It's a partnership between you 
and God. God invites us to be partners with him in bringing Jesus to those who need to know about him. And God is saying, join me in bringing my son to people who need him. And you've got to remember God's role in yours, right? God's role is, is his role, and your role is your role. Your role is contact. God's role is conversion. Your responsibility is the message. God's responsibility is salvation. And you're on God's timetable and not yours. It may take a while. It may take 20 years. It may take 40 years. It may take a long time. You're on God's timetable. But remember this, first of all. It's a privileged partnership that we participate in. We not only have the got to share the gospel, we also get to share the gospel. Amen? We not only got to, we get to. It's a privilege to be able to introduce people to Jesus. Because we are called to actually be involved with God in populating heaven. Can you imagine anything more glorious than that? I haven't found anything better yet. If you find something, let me know. But this is as good as it gets. It really is. We get to participate with God in adding people to the population of heaven. Now I'm going to pray, and we will worship the Lord in communion together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have, truly, of being used of you as a conduit for the gospel going forth into your harvest field, into the field that you have proclaimed to us is already white for harvest. Father, we have tremendous opportunities through Awana, through Sunday school, through the worship service, through community outreach, through conversations over a cup of coffee, through lunches at work, through rubbing elbows with our neighbors over the fence, to open your word to people and to share the message of what has happened to us and how Jesus Christ has come into our life and transformed us and changed us and made us holy. And Father, I pray that we would seize that privilege, not only as a responsibility, a got to, but as a privilege that it is to get to. And we get to share the gospel because you are great and you are glorious and you are awesome and you have saved us and you desire many more to be brought into your wedding feast. And Father, we pray that we would exercise that privilege faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have those who are going to help us come forward. Paul gives instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as to how the Lord's Supper is to be conducted. He begins first with the what he has received from the Lord. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All is right.